the level of venom, ignorance, bigotry, and viciousness among so many members of parliament, both Labour and Conservative, over Israel is absolutely chilling to me. It's not just, you know, ignorant people on the streets. It's in Parliament. It's in our culture and institutions. It's everywhere. I feel safer here in Israel, psychically, emotionally, than I do in Britain. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Melanie Phillips. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brenda, for having me. I think listeners will know why I want you on um, this week in particular. You write about lots and lots of issues, firstly as a Times columnist, of course, but also on your Substack, uh, melaniephillips.substack.com, which everybody should read. But one issue that you've been writing about passionately for a long time is Israel and the hatred for Israel, if let's be upfront about it. And I feel that as I've been watching the events of the past few weeks, firstly, the terrorist assault on Israel in the Middle East itself, and then the moral assault on Israel in the West, I keep thinking to myself, Melanie Phillips saw this stuff coming a long time before other people. And so I was very keen to talk to you to get your views on the current events and what's happening both in Israel and also in the West So I guess my first question for you is that as someone who's been writing perceptively about this for a long time, I'm assuming that like the rest of us, you're shocked by what's happening, but not necessarily surprised. Absolutely right. And do bear in mind that I'm speaking to you from Jerusalem. I spend most of my time in Israel. And one of the main reasons why I have kind of relocated my center of gravity to Israel is that back in the early noughties, I decided that it was all over for British Jews who no longer wanted to live on their knees in Britain. And I know that's a very, very shocking thing to say, and it was a very shocking thing to experience. But I have uh, lived through, um, uh, I, I I hesitate to say anti-Israel hatred because it doesn't quite encompass or do justice to the derangement of the obsession uh, with Israel. But as you will know, um, for a long time uh, in a domestic sphere in London, um, I wrote, I've written for the last mm, three decades um, about what I considered to be the erosion of core values in Britain and the West. And it was only very late on, uh, not, not until really the year 2000, that I started to speak at all or write at all about the situation in the Middle East. It wasn't my thing. I was a domestic social policy, cultural trends writer. And it was only very late on that I actually put these things together and came to the conclusion they were all part of the same thing, that the hatred of Israel, which was not just a disagreement uh, with successive Israeli governments, not just a disagreement over policy. Um, uh, it was an obsessive um, uh, demonization of Israel based entirely upon a lies from start to finish. And more worrying than that, I observed over the years, it was impossible to tell people the facts because among many of these people, they simply wouldn't be believed. Now, subsequently, we've been living through a situation in Britain and the West 
largely under the umbrella of what's called identity politics, um, intersectionality, all that kind of thing, where you say things which are demonstrably the case, and you are told that not only is it wrong, but you are evil and some sort of phobe. So in parallel, we've been living through a, in, in, in a culture which has really come to repudiate reason itself and stand language on its head to call injustice justice, to call uh, <laughs> men women, <laughs> uh, to call all kinds of things by their opposite. And it's therefore no surprise to me um, that that's precisely what has been done towards Israel over the years. So, you know, these are big themes. These are big issues. They're all, each of them has components which are each very complex. But that's the kind of uh, thing that I've been working through, um, assimilating, and it's been changing my my view. So now I spend most of my time in Israel, where you may find this rather strange, since it's currently just about the most dangerous place on earth for a Jew, um, to, for an Israeli to be, for a person who's living here to be. Um, but I feel safer here psychically. Uh, emotionally than I do in Britain. Um, and that's something which you might care to unpick as well, but uh, this is a very personal thing. Um, but that's why I'm here. Um, that's extraordinary. It, it, it's it's also not necessarily surprising, but to hear you say that, that you feel safer psychically at least in Israel than you would on the streets of London here in the UK, um, that is fascinating, grimly fascinating. And I definitely want to pick that apart with you in a moment. But I think I, one of the things I have found most valuable about your writing is the thing that you've just outlined there, which has been your tying together of the crisis in the West, the crisis of reason, the crisis of morality, the crisis of belief. You're tying together of those trends, which uh, people like you and I and, and others have been writing about for a long time with this obsessive, deranged hatred for Israel. And just your ability to marry those two things together, I, th I think is very important and something that I do want to explore with you. I think pr probably the first thing I want to ask you about is Hamas itself, though, uh, especially you're speaking to us from Israel, from Jerusalem. Um, I want to ask you what impact the attack has had on the consciousness of people in Israel. Now, maybe I'm naive. I've always thought that Hamas was a violently anti-Semitic movement. Um, I thought Westerners like Jeremy Corbyn, who referred to Hamas as their friends or who viewed them as some kind of resistance movement, were deluded beyond belief. This was, this has always been a movement devoted to the extermination of the Jewish people. Um, and yet even I was taken aback by the mass pogrom of 7th of October, the scale of it, um, the nature of it, the consequences of it. Was I being naive? Did, did you think it was within Hamas's ability to do something as historically horrific as that? Well, uh, there's a lot to unpick there in just in that question. First of all, what's been the impact on Israel? Um, I don't think it can be overstated, the impact on Israel. Um, Israel is still in a state of absolute shock and trauma. Um, it cannot believe that the country that we all thought was the one safe place for Jews to be, that is partly why people are here, because they think that this is where Jews finally are armed, that never again will we go into the slaughter as we did in the Holocaust, unarmed and unprotected and undefended. 
Um, and that's been completely shattered. And people are very angry. They are absolutely baffled as to how the entire Israeli establishment could have not understood what was going on just in front of them, in front of their eyes, with a state-of-the-art electronic border fence and all the rest of it. And that has yet to be explained. But the idea that not only did rockets come over, which, I mean, people in Britain don't have any understanding. Israel has endured thousands and thousands of rockets coming over um, and living in shelters in the South for years. But the idea that these people could break through and storm into Israel uh, in the way they did and uh, slaughter so many so fast um, and take hostages has been a tremendous shock to the system. And the barbaric nature of the murders that took place, the rapes, the beheadings, the torture of children and babies in front of their parents before they were slaughtered, all of them, the burning of people alive. Now, this is something which is straight out of Nazi Europe. I am the last person to want to draw analogies with Nazism, because I think that is a kind of sacred space. The Holocaust is a sacred space. We should never make analogies because nothing can compare. And clearly, this is not a Holocaust in the sense that Israel is still standing, the Jewish people is still standing. However, the nature of these barbarities was such that the nearest that uh, some Israeli scholars have been able to, to approximate is the Nazi Einsatzgruppen, when people set out not just to kill, but sadistically to torture, to dismember, uh, to a level of sadism and brutality that we can't even get our heads around if we are normal, decent people. So that has been the most tremendous trauma. Was I surprised that the Hamas did it? I was surprised by the scale of it because nobody, as I've just said, nobody in Israel ever thought that anything like that on that scale could happen. But was I surprised by the barbarism? No, because over the years I have charted attack after attack on Israelis which have displayed very similar levels of barbarism. There was one particular family, I think it was called the Fogel family, who were slaughtered in their beds and the baby's head was virtually cut off. Now, that got virtually no coverage, if any, in Britain. And similar atrocities have not been reported. Why? Because they involve people that the British and people in the West call the settlers. In other words, Israeli Jews who live in a part of this area where the liberal West doesn't think they're entitled to live. Now, let's put to one side the fact that I believe they are in, entitled in law, in history and morality to live there. Put that to one side. These are people who were barbarically slaughtered. And yet, to the Western liberal mind, they were not properly human. They certainly did not, in, they were not entitled in the Western liberal mind to the normal considerations of human sympathy. Now, that bespoke to me over the years a level of barbarism among Western liberals that was absolutely devastating to live through. And 
you know, over the years, um, indeed, until this terrible thing happened on October the 7th, people living in those disputed areas have been subjected to daily attacks with rocks being thrown, which have caused injury, which are intended to kill them. Dozens and dozens of these attacks, many, many attacks every day of a far worse nature, which have been uh, plots, which have been thwarted by the Israelis. None of this gets reported because all those Jews living there are considered to be not properly human by the Western liberals. So when Western liberals turned out in the wake of these atrocities, either to support the Hamas as resistance and call Israel's resistance genocide, or just to just to sort of pretend it wasn't happening, or to say, oh, how dreadful, how dreadful, when they themselves had shown a level of a level of inhumanity over the years when it came to Israel. Um, uh, the reaction was shocking, but it didn't surprise me. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Yeah, um, I really agree with that. And uh, one thing that has struck me very clearly over the past month has been there's an irony to all of the kind of Western liberals, Western leftists who pose as criticizing Israel because they're anti-colonialists, but they adopt this incredibly neo-colonial loathing towards Israeli Jews and towards settlers, uh, Jews in particular, who they see as subhuman, essentially, and therefore their deaths, yes. their slaughter, their torture, their kidnapping doesn't register in the way that other people's might. And so there is that extraordinary dehumanization of Israelis taking place in supposedly civilized circles in the West. Correct. And the dehumanization of Israelis bespeaks a, an inhumanity among people who wear their conscience on their sleeve, um, which is particularly uh, uh, nauseating. So you mentioned there, um, you made a very good point about how um, Hamas's act of genocidal terrorism is seen by some people in the West as resistance, whereas Israel's uh, military response to that genocidal terrorism, its hunt for the racist mass murderers who killed more than a thousand of its civilians, that is presented as the genocide. The levels of moral inversion are almost difficult to comprehend right now. But I did want to ask you, I want to dig down into that response from the West in a moment, but what is the attitude in Israel where you are to Israel's actions now uh, in Gaza. Uh, you know, the presentation of it here in the West is so one-sided and so distorted and it's so keen to absolve Hamas of responsibility for the war itself and even for some of the atrocities that Hamas is clearly still carrying out, not only in terms of firing missiles into Israel, but against the Palestinian people themselves uh, by using them as human shields and keeping them hostage and so on. 
what's the attitude in Israel to uh, Israel's war on Gaza? Are people hopeful that it will crush Hamas? Are they worried that it won't succeed? How are people thinking? Uh, they are determined it will succeed because they understand that if it doesn't succeed, then the genocidal onslaught on Israel will continue, not just from Hamas, but by Hamas's um, uh, paymasters, uh, pa- patrons uh, in Iran, who are watching this extremely carefully. Um, and I have to say that, you know, this is to do with military um, strategy and terrorist intentions, and I don't really, this is beyond my pay grade. But nevertheless, what terrifies so many of us in Israel is that in kind of uh, an infernal kind of um, parallel to the success that the IDF are having in Gaza um, is the increasing threat from the north. On the Lebanese-Israel border, uh, the Hezbollah, uh, which uh, is involved in, in Lebanon's uh, own political structure, but is heavily uh, uh, supported, financed, um, and coordinated uh, with Iran, uh, the Hezbollah has something like 150,000 missiles pointing at Israel. They are all embedded within the civilian population as they are in Gaza, uh, among hospitals, uh, schools, and apartment blocks, and all the rest of it. Those missiles are very precise, and they can cover the whole of Israel. If the Hezbollah unleash those properly, then the whole of Israel goes into a shelter. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of Israelis will be killed, a lot. So that is the nightmare scenario. Now, um, the Hezbollah uh, have been firing missiles at the north of Israel on the border, causing the northern border communities to have to move completely, to be, be evacuated. And the Hezbollah are playing a game. Iran and the Hezbollah are playing a game. They want to test whether America will actually come to Israel's support and aid if push comes to shove, and they don't believe that America will. And so they are increasing their attacks every day, and Israel is firing back uh, in response, but is not going any further than that. Now, a lot of Israelis are very concerned that America won't come to uh, Israel's aid if Hezbollah unleash. As far as Gaza is concerned, uh, the Israelis are again concerned that the international community, i.e. America and Britain, are going to try to, are going to blackmail Israel by the withdrawal of essential resupplies of military hardware necessary to fight off this genocide. They're going to, the Israelis are terrified, are worried that uh, America will stop Israel from doing this because America does not wish to provoke Iran. Now, why America doesn't want to provoke Iran? America's eagerness over the last few years to fall over backwards to appease Iran. It's just, I mean, America has just decided, or the Biden administration has just voted another $10 billion of sanction relief to Iran. I mean, this is Iran that's behind, ultimately, what's been going on. It's absolutely extraordinary. Put that to one side for a moment. So that is the fear, that Israel will not be able, will not be allowed to finish the job, um, and as a result, will continue to be exposed to genocidal onslaughts. Now, as far as the actual um, operation in Gaza is going, uh, we have military censorship here. It's not possible to say precisely what's happening. But as far as one can see, Israel, first of all, has made much 
faster strides than anyone thought with a lower level of casualties. That's not to say there aren't casualties. Uh, there are funerals taking place all the time of uh, young soldiers who are falling uh, because of this war that nobody in Israel wanted, ever wanted. No one in Israel wants to go into Gaza. Nobody in Israel wants to hurt the Palestinian people. Um, but uh, the West is giving, and Britain is giving absolutely no, um, it's not acknowledging uh, the extraordinary lengths to which the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, are going to try to preserve civilian life. I mean, this is the most extraordinary situation uh, in which you have, um, uh, uh, for example, take the current operation that's going on as we speak in the Al-Shifa hospital. Now, to listen to, uh, the, you know, the, the, the finest minds in Western journalism, uh, you would think that Al-Shifa hospital is under sustained onslaught by Israeli forces who are hell-bent on destroying the hospital regardless of or possibly intending to uh, take the lives of all those helpless patients and doctors inside. The very opposite is the case. Israel has gone to enormous lengths, first of all, to tell everybody in Shifa to get out, to evacuate. They've refused. Uh, the authorities have refused. They have uh, Israel um, uh, basically surrounding Al-Shifa hospital, but has for several days, if not longer, opened up, according to Israel, the one side of the hospital so people can escape, and people have been escaping. Um, and uh, Israel has not been firing on the hospital, but it's been firing around it because around the hospital are missiles which are being fired to, in order to murder Israeli civilians. Um, and uh, as far as I can see, there was an explosion in or around the hospital, and that was caused, according to the Israelis, by the Hamas. We don't know. But put that to one side. What we now see is that Israel has, um, and this has been independently verified by the Americans, um, uh, the hospitals are being used, have been used for years, and Al-Shifa in particular, uh, in order, uh, has been, have been used by the Hamas as military stores and as nerve centers for their terrorist operations, probably underground. Um, the staff have given evidence in the past uh, that they have been under, uh, they, they have been too terrified to do anything or say anything that Hamas doesn't want them to say or do. And that is undoubtedly the case now. Um, Israel uh, is going into, has gone into Al-Shifa, equipped and has brought in with them um, uh, incubators, uh, uh, baby food, medicine, doctors, and Arabic speakers. Um, and it is going through the hospital as we speak, um, interrogating people where necessary to try to find out where the military stuff is hidden and to try and find out anything about the hostages who it is suspected some of them at least were held underneath the hospital or around the hospital. Um, now, um, we don't know how this is going to it, how, how this is going to end. The Israelis have said today that they have already found evidence of weapons and of Hamas military activity in the hospital. At the moment, we don't know any more than that. Now, um, it is astounding 
uh, that this is not being acknowledged at all. Um, and on the contrary, this tremendous head of steam has arisen uh, in Britain and elsewhere, uh, not least in Parliament, that al-Shifa is being targeted, that the Israelis are putting uh, civilians at risk and so on. Um, uh, you know, the laws of war say that um, while hospitals cannot be targeted in a war, if a hospital is being used as a military, uh, as, as, as a, as a theatre of war, as a military um, uh, centre, it forfeits all its uh, protections. It has to be treated as a military target. The person, the the, the people who are attacking it, or um, as as a military target, must take all precautions that they possibly can to safeguard the lives of civilians. Now, Israel is a, is a, is is behaving, as far as I can see absolutely in accordance with those requirements of international law. And not only that, but the people who are accusing it, with a kind of, this is a kind of modern blood libel that rather than trying to safeguard these civilians, Israel is purposely putting them at risk um, or worse. But in addition to that libelous accusation, Britain and America, those people in Britain and America making this accusation, none of them gave a moment's thought to any civilians that were being uh, hurt or killed in, for example, the operation that the Americans mounted in Mosul, where they flattened it to destroy ISIS, in, for example, the war in Afghanistan, where Britain's forces and Americans and other coalition forces uh, carpet-bombed Afghanistan. Nobody even gave the civilians a moment's thought. Nobody said, what are you doing to take medicines into these hospitals? I mean, it would have been ridiculous. The, uh, I'm not a military strategist, but I read that in every war, it is considered essential that the, the enemy population, the civilian enemy population, is considered part of the enemy. If this was 1939 and we had this chorus going on uh, in the same way, uh, about you know the need to protect German civilians, we wouldn't be talking here today. Not the Nazis would have won. I mean, what are people talking about? So, and there are all kinds of examples one can give to show there's an absolute double standard. Um, it's beyond reason. Uh, the I mean, I was reading the Hansard of yesterday's uh, uh, oral questions, whatever it's called, in in the. In the, in the House of Commons of Andrew Mitchell um, and the debate that took place uh, a week previously on, a, on, on Gaza. The level of venom, ignorance, bigotry and viciousness among so many members of parliament, both Labour and Conservative, over Israel is absolutely chilling to me. It's not just, you know, ignorant people on the streets. It's in Parliament. It's in our cultural institutions. It's in, you know, the, the British Medical Association, for goodness sake. It's, 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 it's everywhere in the what's called the elite institutions. And I think there are millions of decent Brits who do get this, even though they're not being given the information they require and they need. They do get this at some visceral level. They understand a great evil has arisen in Britain uh, over this. Yeah, I, I, I actually wanted to ask you about the coverage of the Al-Shifa hospital um, fighting. 
uh, and you put it very well there. It's 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 like you say you have military censorship there. We have moral censorship here, where certain things are just disappeared from the media. So I have found the coverage of the Al Shifa hospital battles uh, on the BBC and in and, and in much of the broadsheet press. I have found it so incredible because if you glimpsed at it or even if you read it in detail, you would get the impression that Israel is just laying siege to a hospital. That's entirely the impression you would get. There's no explanation as to who else is in this fight. Hamas is often airbrushed entirely from the coverage. You don't see them, you don't hear about them. But, and it's such a, an act of misremembering because Amnesty International wrote a report after the Israel-Gaza conflict in 2014. Amnesty actually wrote a pretty good report, funnily enough, about Hamas's um, persecution and murder of Palestinian people in Gaza, who it would arrest and kill and torture and so on. And it says in that report, on a number of occasions, it says in this report that Hamas used Al-Shifa Hospital, including the outpatient's clinic, as an area for torturing and persecuting Palestinian suspects or or people they thought were on the wrong side and so on. It's been common knowledge for some time that this hospital is used by Hamas. And yet the way it's covered now, you would think that Israel is uniquely evil, uniquely barbaric to such an extent that is, it is laying siege to very sick people. And that is the coverage in the West. And I wanted to ask you, how do you explain that? I mean, there's the obvious answer that there is this weird loathing for Israel. But I, I did also want to ask you if alongside that, there is a naivety and a luxury in the West when it comes to the question of war more broadly. You know, war to us over the past couple of decades has been, you know, often it's been someone on a joystick in some part of America dropping bombs on, on Mosul. And obviously there's been hand-to-hand combat as well. Is it that some Westerners are in such a luxurious post-moral position that they can't even countenance, firstly, that some things are worth fighting a war for, and secondly, that war is deeply unpleasant? Yes. Uh, gosh, these are such big questions, Brendan. I mean, <laughs> um, um, the most the, the most immediate reason uh, is that. Um, uh, uh, dead Israelis disturb the narrative. Um, they upset the narrative, um, by which I mean that um, it's not just a view, it's become a kind of, uh, not, even, not even just a cause, it's a kind of article of faith among the progressive West that um, Israel was created by the Jews uh, through Western guilt over the Holocaust being parachuted in to a country called Palestine and uprooting the indigenous people of Palestine who've been there since time immemorial and uh, taking over and booting them out and then oppressing the rest who remain and who wish to expand their uh, territory as a result. Every single part of that is untrue. It's a lie. It's a falsehood. Okay. But that is the narrative. The narrative is of oppressive uh, Israelis and oppressed Palestinians. And therefore, because in in our victim culture world, if you are a victim and you are oppressed, you are given a moral free pass for anything that you do. Anything that you do that's bad 
cannot be, you cannot be morally responsible for it. It must be the result of what's been done to you. So Palestinian terrorism has been regarded as, okay, we don't, we, we don't approve of it. We can't bear violence, but nevertheless, it's resistance. It's understandable given the despair that they are, that they are in. And conversely, anything the Israelis do as the oppressors cannot ever, they cannot ever be victims. They cannot ever be victims. They can only be oppressors. Suddenly one has, suddenly this, this people with this mindset, have been faced with the appalling visual proof that the people and the cause they've supported resulted in acts of barbarism of a kind that nobody ever thought they would see again after the Holocaust. And it's been perpetrated by people that they have broadly supported and certainly a cause they have absolutely supported. And suddenly the cause turns into something which is genocide. Um, but they've been accusing Israel of genocide, which is amazing considering the population of Gaza and the Palestinian territories has increased by, what, three times, four times since 1948 when Israel was created. That's some genocide, but put that to one side. So it's to serve the narrative and they can't have that. Now, why can't they have that? Why can't they say, okay, it's a bit embarrassing to have to admit that the cause I've pinned my idealism on for the last 30 years is actually fake. But nevertheless, I have to agree, um, uh, you know, uh, right. Now, why can't they say that? And my view, having having been part of, of that way of thinking for a long time, and certainly having had all my friends and colleagues as part of that way of thinking for a long time, and studied them up close, um, my view is that they can never say this to themselves, because it's not simply a question of saying they're wrong. Their belief system is based on the fact that every single thing they believe encompasses and, and embodies moral virtue. They believe in the betterment of society. They believe in creating a better world. They believe in standing up for the oppressed against the oppressor. They believe in justice against injustice. They, be, they believe in, in all these wonderful things. And consequently, anybody who stands up and says anything against them against any of these wonderful things, is not only wrong but evil and has to be stamped out as a, basically an enemy of humanity. Now, we see this in our domestic politics, victim culture and all of that, over a range of domestic issues. Um, but uh, it is absolutely part of their mor moral personality. What they dread more than anything else, the worst thing in the world that could happen to them is to take a position which in their minds would make them a right winger and therefore evil or evil and therefore a right winger because all evil comes from the right and all right wingers are evil. And consequently, faced with this situation that they saw on October the 7th unfolding in front of our horrified gaze, they are faced with the with the with, with the challenge uh, to, in which they say to themselves, you know, uh, am I supposed to junk what I've believed that will make me an evil right winger? And that's so terrible to them because they think that will disintegrate their entire moral personality. So they're going to find a way of dealing with this. So we hear, for example, on the one hand, the silence, the silence from so-called feminists who have told the entire male population of the world, they are intrinsically evil because they're all intrinsically potential rapists. And therefore, you know, the patriarchy and all the rest of it, you know, 
untold numbers of men are unable to have proper relationships with women because of that, all those feminists are silent. Well, not perhaps all, perhaps some have come out. Silent when faced with the appalling rapes of women in that October the 7th atrocity. And the way they deal with it is by saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Regardless of what we've all seen and heard. Um, So there's those people who are silent. And then there are people who try to invert it. They say, well, I mean, it was terrible. Yes. And of course, I abhor these brutal, these brutal things. But nevertheless, but, 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 as soon as you hear the but, you know, the cause, the cause. And when you say to them, as I have done over decades, what are you talking about the cause? What cause of despair? You're talking about the fact they don't have a Palestine state. They have been offered a Palestine state over and over again from the 1930s onwards. The last offer consisted of approximately 95% plus of the territory they were demanding. And their reaction has always been to refuse and to start murdering Jews again. And when you say that to them, they say, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. And they bring up a whole load of chaff, verbal chaff. In other words, it's their, their, their reaction is, it's not true. It's not true. I'm not believing what I'm seeing in front of my eyes even. Because they cannot ever tolerate this idea that their moral personality was based on a monstrous inversion of morality. Now, um, having said that, there are others on the left, and I hear them, who have been jolted into reality and don't know what to do with it. They, they are completely bereft. They, they, they don't know how to deal with this. So how is this going to resolve itself over time? I have no idea. Are we going to see some sort of, you know, a return to moral sanity on the, on, on the left? Personally, I don't think so. I think the stakes for them are too high, for, for too many of them are too, are too high. I think there'll be a certain amount of, of, um, of re- resiling, but a lot of them are going to stick to where they were. So, so that's dis- disturbing the narrative. Um, you, your second bit of your question was, is there a kind of terrible post-moral situation in the West in which we don't do war anymore? And absolutely that is the case. Absolutely that is the case. Um, uh, you know, if you do, you know, war studies uh, these days, you know, it's basically all to do with conflict resolution. It's this idea which is, 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 the, is the nemesis of, of the West um, that... Um, everybody is basically in their image. Everyone in the world is in their image in the West, uh, in the image of people in the West. That is to say, everybody in the world is basically a rational actor and everyone in the world is basically governed by self-interest, just as we are in the West. We are rational. We're governed by self-interest. Consequently, there is no cause or conflict or war which can't be negotiated away. Uh, you appeal to people's rational sense of their own self-interest, and everybody is governed by that. And so you can you can solve every conflict in the world by a negotiated compromise, a peace process. That is partly why the Americans are are, are so determined uh, to uh, to push a two-state solution on on Israel, despite the fact that Hamas have made it clear they want no Jews in their homeland. Period. They say it. They teach their children 
uh, this, uh, but of, of, it goes nowhere with the Americans and all those Western liberals who believe in a two-state solution. If, 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 the, if the problem was the absence of a Palestine state, it would have been solved in the 1930s. Um, so the Americans are still pushing that delusion, and they're also pushing the delusion that Iran can be negotiated with. Iran can be brought in from the cold. And they have absolutely, they make absolutely no acknowledgement of the fact that Iran is run by not just a theocracy, not just a tyranny, which is a theocracy, but a theocracy governed by a particular belief uh, uh, to do with uh, uh, extremist Shia Islam, uh, that um, uh, their duty to God is to Islamize the world, and that um, it is uh, their highest calling uh, to die in that cause, and they don't really care how many of them do die in that cause. Now, faced with religious fanaticism of that kind, the Western liberal mind simply cannot deal with it. It tries to pretend instead that they're just like us, really. It's a kind of, it really is a kind of colonialism. It's a kind of uh, uh, civilizational, intellectual colonialism that everyone's like us, um, and has got to be made like us. So the West in this particular part of the Western liberal mind, uh, you don't do war um, because war is completely unnecessary. What is somebody, what are people been saying? They say it so often. War solves nothing. Really? In 1939, war solves nothing? We had people like that in Britain. It was called appeasement and it very nearly finished Britain completely as a free society. War is a terrible thing should be avoided wherever possible. We should try everything possible to avoid it. But ultimately, ultimately, faced with an unconscionable evil, which will not brook any compromise, then there is no alternative. Um, the Western liberal mind cannot deal with that, doesn't accept that. Uh, war is always terrible, always has to be avoided. Um, and anyone who does war is, is, is a bloodthirsty aggressor even a war of self-defense. And here you come to the final bit of this, of this terrible mindset, which is that it doesn't matter whether it's self-defense or offense. I've, how many times have I heard people say on, on, the liberal, on the liberal side of this, um, it doesn't matter who started it. Excuse me? It doesn't matter who is the aggressor and who is the victim. We've just got to stop the killing stop the killing. Well, actually, it does matter who's the aggressor and who's the victim, because if you just stop the killing, then you doom many more untold thousands to be murdered or to be oppressed or to be tyrannized. Um, so, you know, motive matters. But we live in a consequentialist world in which morality has gone out the window. Um, morality is all about intention. Intention no longer matters. Morality is gone. Intention doesn't matter. All that matters are the consequences. We don't want dead people. The result of that is the 1,400 slaughtered Israelis. That's what, that's what that's produced. So, you know, the people who carried out that Hamas pogrom were the Hamas, aided, I have to say, by a number of so-called ordinary Gazans who burst in after the Hamas broke through the barrier. They followed after them, and they, the ordinary Gazan population, the ordinary civilians who were told have absolutely nothing to do with this, took part in this uh, orgy 
of barbarism, looting and hostage taking. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Your, uh, your points on war made me um, think of John Stuart Mill's line where he said, war is a terrible thing, but it's not the most terrible thing. Thinking nothing is worth a war is worse. And I think that's that's my that's my take as well. You know, as you say, war is always best avoided where possible. It war is hell. You know, it really is hellish. Yeah. Um, but this idea that it, what strikes me as extraordinary at the moment in the ceasefire discussion is that Hamas has openly said it wants to carry out more seventh of October. One of its officials in an interview on Lebanese TV said, "We will do October." the seventh, a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a millionth time. They've made it very clear that they want to do it again and that they uh, will do it again. To suggest that Israel should lay down its arms in the face of a genocidal threat like that, I wrote a piece for Spike saying basically what people are saying without saying it is that Jews should let themselves be killed. And and that's what I think is... um, there's a, there's there's this anger as to you, why won't you Jewish people just take it on the chin? I mean that is a, that's the undercurrent of some of this discussion. I think yes, yes, and part of that is old-fashioned anti-Semitism, the word we're not supposed to even to mention. Um, but part of it is simply a disbelief in the Western liberal mind that people can be really governed by barbarism and savagery. They just it, because it, they, they, they don't believe it, they can't believe it, they don't want to believe it, because it goes against everything they, they fundamentally believe, that we're all basic, everyone's basically good, that goodness is in the world, and that the only reason there is not goodness expressed all the whole time is because people are oppressing other people. Well, actually, you know, there's good and bad. And unfortunately, this liberal mindset um, has uh, incentivized sanitized, encouraged, apologized for the bad. And my goodness me, those people sitting in Tehran calibrating quite how many more Israelis they're going to kill and how are governed, considerably governed, by their very close reading of what Western liberals, i.e. the dominant elites in America and Britain, are saying. They are watching and listening to this crescendo of pressure being brought to bear on Israel. And they're saying it. 
They're saying it. They're saying it in terms. We, we, we can see. We can see Israel can't win this because the West is going to stop it. We can hear all the, the, you know, the, the cries for the Palestinians and so on. They're watching. They're, they're using it. The West are the accomplices and greatest weapon in the armory of the most barbaric people on our planet. Yeah, I think um, I've been thinking a lot about the interplay between what is presented to us as Palestine solidarity in the West and Hamas's behaviour, Hamas's actual behaviour. And when I when I heard that Hamas official being interviewed, and he uses the extraordinary line where he says, um, "We are the victims in this. Everything we do is justified. We can't be held responsible for anything." That comes directly from the kind of privileged movers and shakers at Harvard University, who put out a statement even before the 7th of October pogrom was over, saying this is entirely the fault of Israel. And you you can see this unholy alliance between the victim culture of the West, as you put it, where they always side with who they think is the victim. And usually they judge that by skin colour or ethnicity or some other identitarian um, uh, uh, judgment. Um, you can see a, a relationship between that victim culture and then what Hamas says and does. And of course, the other thing Hamas says all the time is that it is happy to sacrifice martyrs. What it means, it's happy for ordinary people in Gaza to die because it knows that that in turn fuels this um, Hamas sympathy or so-called Palestine solidarity in the West. It knows that if it gives dead Palestinians to Western observers, it will fuel the fury with Israel. It Absolutely. will fuel that whole discussion. So there is a real, as you say, it's a complicity between the way in which the West is talking about this and the events on the ground in Gaza around Hamas itself. Yes. I mean, Hamas uh, specialise in using uh, civilians as human shields and hostages. So does the Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon. That's exactly what it's done by sighting its missiles among the civilian population. But you talk about, you know, the Palestine, Palestine solidarity as, as a movement. And the Americans say, when this is over, when Hamas is got rid of, um, then we must go back to giving the Palestinians a state. And who do we want to run Gaza, say the Americans, after the Hamas, assuming the Hamas are removed from the scene? We want the Palestinian Authority run by, led by Mahmoud Abbas to run Gaza. Now, clearly there are Palestinians both in Gaza and in the disputed territories and everywhere in the world. There are Palestinians who are good, decent people who want nothing more than to live in peace, have a, have a good job, raise their families, just like anybody else. Sure. But there is no Palestinian leadership at the moment and never has been, which is committed to living in peace with Israel. The Palestinian Authority, which we are held up to be the people who should be governing Gaza, they are people who pay terrorists and their families a stipend for murdering Israelis. They are the people who week in, week out, teach their children, both through educational materials and through um, preachers and other materials on their TV, uh, but they teach their children that their highest calling in life is to murder Jews and steal their land, by which I mean, the, by, by land, I don't just mean the disputed territories of what the West calls the West Bank. I mean, they teach them to steal Tel Aviv, Jaffa, Haifa, Israeli cities. Um, and 
they dress them up. We can see videos the whole time of little children, three, four, five, six, dressed up as fighters. This is the Palestinian Authority, supposedly the moderates. And this is the Palestinian Authority that presides over and is supposed under the Oslo Accords to govern the disputed territories known as the West Bank, where they have sat back, basically, and allowed the development in those territories of Iranian-backed radicalization of the Palestinian Arabs living in those territories, so that the amount of terrorist attacks from there has increased exponentially over the past few months, years, in fact, last, I don't know, two or three years, maybe. Um, So, um, and, you know, the Israelis are being murdered regularly uh, from time to time um, by attacks from there. This is the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority. And they're run by this man, Mahmoud Abbas. Okay, he wears a suit. He looks like a grandfather. He is a man whose so-called doctorate was in Holocaust denial and who has said that his greatest hero and role model is a man who existed in the 1930s called Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Haj Amin al-Husseini entered into a pact with Hitler that when Hitler won the war, he, al-Husseini, would exterminate every Jew in the Middle East. That is the role model of the man who the Americans want to put in charge of Gaza after the greatest mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, and nobody in Britain, I say nobody, very few in Britain know anything about this because the media in Britain, led by the ineffable BBC and the hardly less effable Sky News, refuse to tell them any of this. And if you tell them, if, if you know, they, they don't give people like me a platform to say any of this, very rarely, very rarely, and only by accident. And then when by accident I'm able to say it, I can see the shock on the, on the interviewer's face. Shock not just because, oh my God, she's out of control, sort of expression, but shock because like, what is she talking about? This is the most chilling thing. They have no idea because they have all, you know, we we now have two, three, four generations that have grown up not being taught the truth and being taught instead lies and propaganda. And it's not just lies and propaganda which have a direct impact on the lives and well-being of Israelis and Jews. It has a direct impact on the lives and well-being of everybody in the West, because behind this uh, Palestinian agenda, which is an agenda of extermination of the Jewish homeland, behind it, and this is really dating back from the 1920s onwards, behind it is not a fight over land. It's not even a fight over nationality or anything like that. It is a religious war. It is an Islamic religious war, and not just against the Jews, it's against the West. So the Hamas actually say, you know, first we're going to get rid of the Jews, then it's going to be the Christians, and then we take over the West. That's the agenda. 
And that's certainly the agenda of Iran. And people in the West, again, have absolutely not a clue. You know, they know there's something called, you know, Islamic terrorism, which is like on the fringes. Nobody has ever joined up the dots for them. No one's allowed to join up the dots for them. No one knows that there are dots to be joined up. This is what's so frightening to me. Yeah. And um, we're not even allowed to say Islamic terrorism anymore. You now have to say religious claimed terrorism, I think, is is the new phrase. Um, but I, uh, I want to, I've got a couple more questions for you, Melanie, and I want to ask you about Britain. Um, you mentioned it there. You mentioned the British media, which is failing badly at the moment. It has been for quite some time. Um, and you mentioned earlier that you have virtually left Britain, or you certainly spend a huge amount of time now in Israel because you didn't you feel safer there than you did here. Um, you will have seen the events of the past few weeks since the seventh of October attack. Um, there were huge demonstrations every weekend. We've seen open anti-Semitism at those demonstrations. We've seen people dressed like Hamas terrorists. We've seen people chanting about um, the seventh century massacre of Jews by Muhammad's army. Uh, we've seen people waving swastikas. It, horrendous, horrible stuff on these marches, which I think Suella Braverman quite accurately called hate marches, or certainly they consisted of a lot of hate. Um, we've seen the posters of kidnapped kids being torn down on one in um, on the Finchley Road, which has a large Jewish population in, in London. Um, someone drew Hitler moustaches on an image of three-year-old twins who've been kidnapped by Hamas. Extraordinary stuff, blatantly racist, really, really horrific. Um, so I have been taken aback by the level of anti-Jewish racism over the past few weeks. And it has made me think, what is the future for Jewish people in Britain? Obviously, I want them to stay. Lots of them want to stay too. And I think the majority of decent people want to have a Jewish community in Britain and would feel that it was a moral failure of historic proportions if we were not able to have that. You've made a slightly different decision. So what is your analysis of, of where things stand in Britain at the moment in relation to the Jewish people who live here? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I should say I live mainly uh, here in Israel. I spend still spend a great deal of time in Britain. Um, I am British. I will always be British. Britain made me. I care very deeply about Britain. Um, uh, I, I love many of its people. Um, uh, I respect what Britain has given to the world um, and admire it. I think it was un, un, unparalleled. Um, so I'm still very taken up with what's going on in Britain and it grieves me greatly. It's a bit like, you know, kind of you wake up one day and find, you know, your family's been basically ab abusing you and you didn't realize that because you're in a kind of false consciousness situation. And then you, th you think, okay, I, I can't live with them anymore, but they're still your family and you still care about them. And you feel better by and safer by not being living with them. But nevertheless, you know, you go back and you say, "Oh, come on, come on, come on!" You know, can't you, can't you, can't you change? It's like it's like it's like that. So, what do I think is the future for Britain's Jews? Well, look, I came to the conclusion in the early nought in the early noughties, as I've, as I've said, not that long after nine eleven, um, when the Intifada was raging in Israel. Israelis are being blown to smithereens in pizza parlors and cafes and buses. And Israel went to basically war against uh, the terrorist infrastructure in what's called the West Bank. 
and uh, Britain just rose up against Israel. Um, and at that point, and it wasn't just against Israel, it was then all you, you Jews, you Jews. And I became the other simply. And at that stage, I'd never been to Israel. I never wanted to go to Israel. Can you believe it? Um, and at that stage, I just stood up as a matter of kind of well, like, like this is like unreasonable and has everybody lost their minds and this is so unfair. And I was immediately, you know, you Jews. And it was made quite clear to me that I had to choose, that Britain's Jews had to choose between defending Israel and being regarded as British. I heard that to my face, said it to my face. I heard it in debates. It was the undercurrent of much that was written. And I thought, that's it. That's it. I can't live here anymore. But that was a very personal decision. Um, I would not expect anybody else to make it. Scroll on to where we are today. Britain's Jewish community has uh, uh, at various times in the last 30, 40 years told itself it's been living in a fool's paradise, that it thought it was safe uh, after the discovery of Auschwitz and the final solution. But in fact, what uh, this is what people were saying in the, uh, when the Intifada was, was, was going on and this great eruption of anti-Semitism happened in Britain. A lot of British Jews then said, we'd be living in a fool's paradise. We now realize we only had a kind of 50-year holiday from overt anti-Semitism. And then everything went back to kind of normal and everything went, you know, everybody sort of got on with things. And then there was the Jeremy Corbyn uh, episode and the Jews said, oh dear, oh dear, you know, if the Labour comes to power, then, we, then we, we, we've had it. And then Jeremy Corbyn was expelled and uh, Keir Starmer took over and the Jews then said, we're fine. Everything's going to be fine. It's all gone away. And then... October the 7th happened and the reaction happened. And now British Jews are in a state of absolute shock and not just a state of shock, in a state of fear. They are being targeted by uh, a, a rate of attacks, both verbal and physical, which have soared, I mean, by an unconscionable amount in the last five weeks. Um, so where does that leave them? Look, I wouldn't tell anybody, I wouldn't advise anybody what to do. It's entirely a matter of how you feel. There are still Jews in the Jewish community in Britain who don't see it. They don't feel it. They live in a kind of bubble. Um, they uh, live in a Jewish area. Uh, they haven't experienced any abuse on public transport. Their children are fine. Okay, there are those people. There are others who do feel it, who are feeling abuse, but who say, well, where can we go? We can't just up sticks and go and live in Israel. We can't up sticks and go and live anywhere because we're, you know, we're, we're rooted here. Our family is here. Our jobs are here. Our houses are here. I understand that. It is a very, very difficult thing to move, to relocate yourself. Very difficult. The level of personal pain has to be exponentially far higher than it is now for many of them to think that they actually have to leave. And I do hope that it's never going to reach that point. I really, really do hope. I don't know how this is going to pan out. There are clearly millions of decent people in Britain and the West who are absolutely horrified, not just by what they saw unfold in Israel on October the 7th, but horrified by the reaction horrified and beside themselves over these hundreds of thousands of 
people who have been allowed to desecrate the public space, especially on Remembrance Day, by screaming for the murder of Jews and the destruction of Israel, and screaming for jihad and intifada, which is a scream for violence against everybody. So there are millions who are horrified, millions who are looking to their government, the government of Great Britain, to do something about this. And that's another story, the political repercussions of all of that. But what I'm saying is, I don't know, none of us can know how culturally this is going to pan out. Are we going to find that, you know, there is going to be, after all, after all this is over, and heaven knows how long this is going to take before we can say, okay, that crisis is now over. I don't know. I mean, this may go on for some time. But anyway, assuming that we'll, co- we'll come a point where the crisis is over. Are we going to look at a West which says, we've been shocked into our senses. We now understand that we have to be, uh, first of all, much clearer about what we are defending and how we have to defend it. Are we going to see that? Or are we going to see um, a terrible division in society in the West between those who get it and those who don't get it? Or are we going to see a general kind of slide back into, well, everything now has kind of gone back to normal and we'll deal with the bits that worry us around the fringes. In other words, you know, steady as you go, back to where we were, um, nothing, not, nothing much to see there, move along, please. I have no idea how this is going to pan out and how it pans out to, uh, uh, um, uh, will affect how the Jewish community sees itself. Uh, because these things are all connected. The anti-Jewish feeling is connected to this wider breakdown in cultural and social cohesion, the sense of everybody pulling together uh, in one shared project, which is called the United Kingdom, um, uh, the attachment to British tradition and values and all the rest of it. Um, uh, this is all connected. The, the, the erosion of all of that is, in my view, intimately connected with the turning and on and scapegoating of Jews and the state of Israel. Uh, so, you know, the one thing has to go with the other. And I have no idea whether this is going to work out for the better or the worse or uh, something in between, which is not going to be very good. Um, okay. That brings me very nicely onto my last question for you, Melanie. Um, Something you said there that's uh, very important that you have to we have to do both of those things at the same time, which is firstly to try to repair the broken moral infrastructure within our societies and also offer solidarity to well Jewish people here and also Israel. And it seems to me that one thing that's become very clear for me, I've been thinking this for a few years, but it's become incredibly clear to me since the seventh of October, is that. Israel's burden at the moment, and it might be a burden that Israel doesn't want, but is, it seems to me that um, Israel's position, Israel's fight, is intimately bound up with the crisis of Western civilization. And there is an interplay between those two things, because as you were saying earlier, a lot of the deranged hatred for Israel flows from things like identity politics, the loss of faith in the Western project, the loss of faith in the idea of morality, that there is good and there is bad and that one ought to take a side. Um, all of the, the corrosion of all of those things over the past few years has fed into and influenced and shaped Israelophobia and 
um, anti-Semitism, the new forms of anti-Semitism. So it seems clear to me that solidarity with Israel ought to be the most pressing concern, I would say, of old-fashioned progressive people, if we can even use that word anymore, certainly decent-minded people. Um, do you agree? Do you think that whether Israel likes it or not, and it may very well not like it, that it has, it does play, its current predicament does play this very important role, I think, in the question of whether the West is going to come to its senses or not? Well, I'd very much think that. Um, I have long thought that uh, you can tell if somebody actually understands and values the uh, you, you can tell if somebody understands a threat to Western civilization and understands and values uh, uh, quite why it's so important if somebody actually supports Israel. And if somebody opposes Israel, and by opposing Israel, I mean opposes the, you know, the Zionist project, then you can absolutely guarantee that they're on the wrong side of everything else. So these two things are absolutely intimately connected. Um, Israel, I mean, Israel is hopeless, has been absolutely hopeless at putting its own cause across. And that is partly, it's, it's because it's run by people who are, I'm afraid, extremely arrogant, um, and partly because they are ignorant, um, partly because, I'm, and this is the worst thing of all, uh, but the most important thing of all, they actually believe that the West is irredeemably anti-Jew, and therefore there is no point in their even trying to educate them. Now, this is, to put it mildly, exceptionally stupid and short-sighted. As a strategy, it has been disastrous. So don't look to them <laughs> to try to rescue anybody else apart from apart from themselves. And, you know, but I mean, as we can see, you know, it is a desperate, desperate struggle that they have to uh, enable their survival and the survival in safety and security of their people. Um, and this is a really life and death situation here uh, and a struggle that is that is you know the, the seismic nature of it cannot be overestimated um but you know if it is the case as you say and as i agree that these two things are connected support for israel support for the west basically survival of the west how is this to be done how is this to be brought about um and it is very difficult if, by def almost by definition, the institutions of the culture are not promoting the information uh, that should be promoted, um, uh, which would leave anti-Semites with nowhere to go. The problem is that anti-Semites have, have had everywhere to go uh, because while most people are not, I'm sure, driven to their support for Israel by anti-Semitism, nevertheless, anti-Semitism is completely bound up with the narrative uh, of hatred of Israel. Um, and uh, so it's one of these chicken and egg situations where, um, you know, you've got to have the platforms to, you know, you've got to use platforms to, to, to correct this narrative, but you can't correct the narrative because you, you can't get the, you can't get the platforms. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. One of, one of the answers is that the Jewish community in Britain should be much braver than it has been. It itself is, is also riven by ignorance and um, uh, f the false narrative that it gets from the BBC and the Guardian and 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 the mainstream media, um, which builds on its own ignorance of Jewish history of the Middle East. I mean, I know this because I was one of them 
I mean, you know, only when I started jumping up and down about Israel and people started saying, well, read this, read that. And I suddenly realized how amazingly ignorant I was of Jewish history, of Judaism, uh, of the Middle East. I knew nothing. And I'm, I'm do, I do Jewish community a disservice. There are many, obviously, who are very learned, who know a lot, know much more than me, and know a lot about everything. But there is an awful lot who don't. And they are timid. Not surprisingly, they're very timid. So as a community, with some honourable exceptions, as a community, they have not stood up and told Britain the truth. You know, when the Foreign Office say Israel is in illegal occupation, it's actually, as a matter of law, not true. Now, you won't get British Jews saying that. You won't get British Jew, the, the British Jewish leadership standing up and saying anti-Semitism is a scourge, and while there are many, many, many decent Muslims, anti-Semitism is out of control in the Muslim community and the Islamic world. And that has to be dealt with. You won't find a Jewish community leader saying that. So, you know, if the Jews, you, you, you can't be plus royal que le roi. If Israel, neither Israel nor the Jews will stand up and say these unpalatable truths, then how does anyone expect anybody else to say them or even believe them? So you've got to start somewhere. I mean, uh, you know, you need political, cultural, religious leadership to stand up and say these things. Now, will they do so? Well, I don't see any sign of it, frankly. Um, you know, you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's absolutely on the wrong side, um, uh, who, uh, you know, can hardly bring himself to condemn what happened on October the 7th. And then, uh, you know, as soon as he expresses anything like that, um, uh, it's but, um, and all the emphasis is on is on the suffering of the Palestinians. Um, uh, so you've got a moral inversion at the very top and heart of the Anglican Church. Um, and, you know, if you're talking about, you know, cultural influences, I don't think, e even in post-Christian Britain, I think that the influence of the Anglican Church, the influence, the influence of the Church of England in kind of setting a moral standard, a moral tone, you know, even people who don't actually, you know, believe in any of that, they kind of listen to what bishops and archbishops are saying, and it kind of forms a kind of moral framework. And if that moral framework is amoral, immoral, and disgusting, and is morally in inverted and morally degenerate, then my goodness me, you've got a problem. So that has to be dealt with. Someone's got to stand up and start saying all this. Now, maybe this will be a jolt to the system. We're seeing it playing out as we speak. It's got much more time to run, I'm sure, unfortunately. We don't know how it's going to end, but that's what you need. You need political, cultural, religious leadership to put these, to, to join up the dots in the way that you and I are both suggesting. Melanie, thank you very much. Not at all. I don't know about you, but I feel quite exhausted. <laughs> Excellent discussion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.